How was your drive-in this morning? I read this week of a, uh, a person that was uh, out for a drive, and to their surprise, they were pulled over by a police officer. They were pulled over and asked for their driver's license and registration, and they were surprised because uh, they didn't know what could have brought that on. They, uh, the person, the, the driver, asked the, the police officer, uh, I, I don't think I've gone through any red lights or I, I'm certain I wasn't speeding. What, what, what seems to be the problem, officer? And the officer replied, no, you weren't doing any of those things, but that there was a, uh, a woman that was driving in the left lane and you swerved around her and I saw you wave, shaking your fist at her. And he said, that wasn't all. I also saw you flushed and angry as, you, uh, as that uh, Hummer driver cut you off in, in your lane, and, and you, were, you were quite heated up about that. Finally, I watched as you pounded the steering wheel as you got stopped in traffic at the bridge. Still, the driver was confused. He said, I, I'm sorry, officer. I, um, I didn't re- are, are any of those things crimes? Did I, did I do anything that was, uh, that was illegal? And he said, not in themselves, but I also noticed that you have a bumper sticker that says, Jesus loves you and so do I. And so when I saw your behavior, I determined you must be a stolen car. (laughs) That's the reason I pulled you over. Sometimes the bumper sticker doesn't tell the whole story, right? Sometimes we send out messages about who we are and what we believe and and yet, over time, we kind of send out different messages by the way we live our lives. And that is, that, that is the great uh, criticism that's been labeled against the church and, about, and against people of faith. They're hypocrites. The way we live doesn't match up to the way that we say that we believe. It's also one of the reasons that many people give for leaving the church comes in two different forms. Sometimes uh, someone will be involved in church and they'll be attending church and they'll, 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 things will be kind of going along fairly good for, for a little while and then they'll say, they'll learn something about a particular person that they, they might like and they might respect, they might otherwise have learned from and they'll see that th- the way that they live doesn't seem to be measuring up to the things that they say they believe. They're hypocrite. And they decide, well, if church is just a bunch of hypocrites, I'm going to check out. The other form it comes in is that people will go along in the Christian faith and then they will discover things about themselves that don't seem to measure up. And so people will say, I was tired of being a hypocrite. And instead of dealing with the behavior that doesn't match the things that they believe and the standards that they hold, they decide by withdrawing altogether from the things that they believe and and from church and other things that somehow that'll make things better. And so people will, hypocrisy is a big deal in people's um, faith and and their, their direction. So how are we to deal with hypocrisy? How do you deal with hypocrisy? If you haven't faced the temptation or haven't faced some of the conflict between your behavior and your your beliefs at some point so far, you will. 
uh, if you haven't faced hypocrisy in a, in a church. And it's not just a church. I would, I would counter any community of faith. You will find people who espouse a standard and don't live up to that standard. What, what's, what's your plan for dealing with hypocrisy? You will confront this. Today's passage deals with this very topic. I believe it gives us uh, clear help from God's word, some of the safeguards that God has provided for us to deal with hypocrisy. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to uh, Galatians chapter 2, and I will uh, read from verses 1 to 14. Galatians 2, chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And for those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember, remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men from, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of God. So the passage, I believe, lays out three safeguards, three things that will help you and me deal with hypocrisy when we find it in another person and we find it in our own heart. I'd like to look at them one at a time. The first thing the passage shows us is that God's word protects us against hypocrisy. What the Bible can do is shore up convictions that can help you from, uh, help you to, to keep your attention on what God has said and uh, relation in contradiction to what people have said. God's word guards us against hypocrisy. And it does so in an interesting way. It does so by way of a case study. It'll give us a case study of conflict in the church, how they dealt with it, and in the context of that, it gives us uh, an understanding of how to deal with 
hypocrisy. The initial conflict is described in verse 4. Paul's describing an incident at a church in Antioch. He's writing to uh, a church in Galatia. Uh, but it, there was an incident in Antioch that, where Paul speaks of some false brothers who secretly slipped in. Now, that might be puzzling language for some of you. Some people don't have categories or, or have a category called false brother or false Christian. Many people just have categories of churchgoer and non-churchgoer. But the Bible says that there are people who are not only in the church, but are, um, in this case, stood out as the most zealous, earnest, uh, devoted uh, Christians. Actually, he said they are false. There's something false about them. He's talking about people in the church who claim to be Christians but really aren't. According to verse 4, what they're trying to do is actually enslave the church. What he means by that is that as he has been proclaiming both in this letter as well throughout the New Testament, the message of God's grace says that for anyone who repents, turns from sin, and puts their faith in Jesus Christ is forgiven of all their sins and accepted by God. There's nothing we have to do to earn more of God's love, more of God's acceptance. Now, true repentance and true faith will then issue in in change to the life. The person will start to do new things. The person will stop doing some old things. There will be a development of new convictions and new new habits. But none of those things earns more of God's approval. None of those, per, none of those things earns like a higher standing with God. You don't, you don't go from a D Christian to kind of moving up to a C. To a, there aren't these grades or ranks. There, there aren't things that we add to God's approval or acceptance of us. There are many people in the church today, however, as in the first century, who don't understand that grace. They don't understand a God who freely accepts us solely on the basis of our faith in Christ alone. At least they don't believe that we're saved saved by that grace alone. And so what they do is they add something. And it sounds very harmless because they're adding typically something that's good. It's, It's a good thing usually. But what they do is they take that good thing and they make it a condition of God's forgiveness, God's acceptance, of God's love. And then what they do is they exclude people who don't measure up to that standard, people who don't go along with them. Here's the difference. If we line them up next to each other, our goal as a church is not to make everyone act Christian. Our, our, our whole purpose here is not to come up with a, a set of behaviors from the Bible that we actively seek to conform people to. That's what the Bible would call religious slavery, where through obligation and pressure and rules and uh, exclusion, you try to force something, some behavior from the outside that we all conform to. That's not what we're trying to accomplish as a church. 
What instead we're trying to do is offer a free invitation in the gospel to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then as someone puts their faith in in Jesus Christ, he comes to live in their heart through the Holy Spirit and he brings change from the inside out. So rather than the person's life and change and behavior being motivated by guilt and control and expectation and obligation, it is motivated by the Spirit of God living within a person, motivated solely by their their faith and the new relationship they have with God, the new creation that he creates in that human being. That is the Christian freedom that this passage speaks of. But you can find yourself in a church and experiencing a form of legalistic peer pressure. So here's how it works. You can can start attending the church and things go pretty good for the first little while. But then you kind of hit a wall and you feel excluded because you didn't join in a particular ministry. Or you can feel excluded for not having a particular spiritual experience. We all had this experience and you haven't had this experience, so we're going to kind of put you in this camp and we're in this camp over here. And the implication is that they're kind of a one rung up from you. You can feel excluded for not dressing in a particular way. You can feel excluded for not using the, the, the right Bible translation or what that particular group says is, is the, the right Bible translation. You can feel excluded for not voting a certain way for your political beliefs. You can feel excluded for not raising your children the way the group is raising their children. And when people exclude for those reasons, they would probably not sign a statement that says, in order to be saved by God, you need to add these things to your life. And yet by their behavior, they communicate that very thing. What then happens if you go along, you start doing some of the things that are in that group, but it hasn't come from your faith. It hasn't come from inside or in your heart. It just come out of fear for what everybody else might think if you don't. And in order to be accepted, you start doing things that you don't really believe. And at that moment, a Christian hypocrite is born. The next step is now that you're in the group and you got into the group by conforming to some behavior, whatever it was, in order to be accepted by them, even though you didn't believe it and didn't flow out of your faith, now that you're in, your, in the group, you do what people did to you. You look for people who aren't in your group and you exclude them and you exert pressure on them and guilt on them and obligation upon them so that they will be won over. And that happens in the church all the time doesn't just happen in church. This is, uh, I believe, of communities of faith all, all over. And that's when, a, in this case, you go from a, a Christian hypocrite to a hypocritical church. Conviction regarding God's word protects us against this kind of Christian peer pressure. 
in verse 5, Paul models it. When he was faced with the pseudo-Christian peer pressure, look look what he says. He says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He purposed in his heart to guard the truth even if that meant rejecting people's pressure. The problem is if you haven't built convictions in the word of God, all that you've got to go on is what people tell you. You have to build convictions in God's word to know this is what God has said and my allegiance is to him. It's not to a group that wants to control and enslave me. It is to a savior who died for me. And, but to, to have those convictions that will protect you, that do help you to stand strong and stand in freedom, you need to find those convictions in God's word. Paul had purposed in his heart to guard the truth, even if that meant rejecting people's prayer, peer pressure. So conviction regarding God's word protects us against Christian hypocrisy. Conviction again regarding God's character, though, also protects us against Christian hypocrisy. Look what Paul says in verse 6. What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. See, as Paul studied the Bible, he developed convictions about the nature of God. He began to be clear about who God is, how he acts, and what we can know about his nature and character. So he was convinced, for example, here that God shows no partiality. He doesn't have any favorites. He doesn't have an A-team Christian and a B-team Christians. He, he doesn't, doesn't play favorites. He doesn't include and exclude within, among those who have put their faith in, him, in, in, in Jesus Christ through faith. When he faced pressure, and he did, to treat people differently based on whether they were circumcised or uncircumcised, or whether they were rich or they were poor, or as often is the case in, in, was the case in Roman society, whether they were high class or low class, or whether they had a certain color of skin, they had a particular ethnic background. Paul faced all of those pressures, and each time he said, God shows no partiality. That's not who my God is. That's not who God is, and so I don't care what the, what the group says. I don't care what the people say. That's not how God is, and that's not how I'm going to act. And so his convictions about who God is and how he has revealed himself gave him the strength to stand when others would have him to change. So God's word guards us against one form of hypocrisy. Here, though, I'll make a statement that is strange for me to make. God's word isn't enough. In fact, I believe God's word alone can actually encourage another form of hypocrisy. We need fellowship to guard us against this form of hypocrisy. When a Christian tries to live with me, my Bible, and my convictions, there is a proud a proud independence that often will set in that will, it's just a breeding ground for hypocrisy. Healthy Christian fellowship guards us against hypocrisy. I mentioned to you the problem that Paul experienced in verses four and five with the pseudo-Christian peer pressure that he faced at Antioch. He had stood his ground. 
He had resisted conforming to, to their message. But I love the fact that he didn't just say, I know I'm right because I read the Bible and I prayed about it. And Paul did read the Bible. He did pray about it. But what he does in verse 1 is he describes a visit that he made to Jerusalem to visit with the apostles. And he had brought along Barnabas and Titus. In verse 2, he says, he set before the other apostles the gospel that he had been preaching. He figured, I'm pretty certain I've understood what God has said here. I'm pretty clear about what the scriptures teach, but I've faced so much opposition. There have been so many people that disagree with me that I need to, I need to, to check in with some people that I respect for a reality check. I, I need to hear from some other people and allow some other believers who I believe understand grace and allow them to speak into my life. And bringing Titus along on the trip was a good test case because he wasn't circumcised. As a Greek convert of Paul's, he was taught that by faith in Christ alone, he could be forgiven by God. And there wasn't anything he needed to add uh, to that in order to receive God's acceptance. Paul had tried to reassure him that he didn't need to be circumcised as well. But it was just Paul. And, and there were so many people that disagreed with him. There were so many people that wanted to add conditions, that wanted to exclude him because he didn't fit into their mold. So how would the apostles in Jerusalem treat him? What would they do when Titus showed up? an uncircumcised guy among all of these Jewish Christians? Would they treat him like a second-class second Christian? Would they, meet him, would they make him sit at a separate table when the meal came around? Would they have him wait at the door while the real Christians talked to him and discussed the issue? Verse 3 gives their verdict. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Paul could tell him that God accepted him. But until he experienced it with some real live Christians, real flesh and blood, it was difficult for him, I believe, to feel it. I think the whole visit had an emotional impact on both of them. In verse 7, Paul recounts how they had affirmed his ministry. And then in verse 9, he says that when James, Peter, and John perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Took a certain vulnerability for a guy like the Apostle Paul to, to make a trip to Jerusalem like that. To say, like, this is, what a, this is the message that I believe God has given me. This is what I believe the scriptures teach. This is what I've been teaching other people, but like, am I crazy? I've just gotten so much opposition. Am, am I off track here? When he showed that vulnerability, though, I believe that right hand of fellowship, that endorsement from people that he loved and respected and who he, who he understood that they knew grace, I, I think that it made an emotional impact in his life. But we need to open up our lives to other people to experience that kind of affirmation. There are almost certainly some people in the congregation this morning who carry with them some 
heavy, heavy sin. And maybe somewhere along the line you heard that through faith in Christ, that sin was forgiven and it's past and it's separated from you and God no longer holds it against you. God remembers it no more. You've heard those things along the way and yet never having had the courage or the vulnerability to open up to another believer who understands grace, it doesn't feel like God's forgiven you. It doesn't feel like it's gone away. It doesn't feel like God has cleansed you from that sin. There's something that happens when believers will confess their sins to one another. And we, we confess our sins to people who understand grace, people who aren't out to enslave us and heap obligations and conditions upon God's acceptance. But there's something that happens when we do that where we experience something powerful in our lives. We take the acceptance that we have heard, we've seen in words, and we experience it in our hearts and in our souls. So we need to open up our lives to people's affirmation. We also need to open up our lives, though, to people's correction. There's a Peanuts cartoon with uh, Lucy saying to Charlie Brown, I hate everything. I hate the world. And I hate all the people in the world. And Charlie Brown's a, a good and patient friend, and he says, uh, but Lucy, I, I thought you had inner peace. And Lucy says, I do have inner peace. I just still have ob outer obnoxiousness, though. And it takes a friend like Charlie Brown to be able to kind of point that out. Like, there's something that you're kind of saying about what's in here that isn't really kind of showing up out, out here. It, it takes people to, to, to point that out. Sometimes it can come so harsh, so strong, so self-righteous that it's hard to hear, right? You're really not sure whether the person loves you or just loves pointing out people's sin. That, so there, there can be that. But what Peter had, we'll see here in Paul, was a friend who cared about him, who loved him, and was willing to offer some correction, but he did so in love. When Peter came to Antioch, he began to act hypocritically. And verse 11 says, Paul, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. <laughs> he was clearly in the wrong and somebody needed to stand up and say something. Peter was in danger not only of becoming a full-blown hypocrite himself, of acting in a way that was completely against what he said he believed, but not only becoming a hypocrite himself, but drawing the entire church and maybe the entire early Christian movement into his hypocrisy. Paul was fortunate to have someone like Paul. He had the courage to correct him. Do you have people in your life like that? Are you the kind of person that invites correction? Is it, is, is it easy to disagree with you? Do people have to kind of tiptoe around if they're going to say anything short of affirmation and flowers? Because if, that's, if those are the kind of guards that we're putting up, it's a breeding ground for hypocrisy. 
We need people to be able to speak into our lives. We need the vulnerability to accept the affirmation and to accept the, the correction. We need both of them in order to walk in, in God's uh, help and in his protection. Proverbs 27.17 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If all you're getting is kisses and flattery, <laughs> that's not really what friendship is. There, there's a little bit of salt there as well. Real friendship involves the moons from time to time. As we draw near to other Christians in fellowship, sometimes they correct us. Sometimes they affirm us. Sometimes they will just gently put up a mirror to our lives and say, I, I may be wrong, but this is what I see. This is what I, why, that I see in your life, and I, I love you not to say anything. Love you too much not to say anything. We need to, however, open our lives up to receive that kind of correction. Fellowship can guard us against hypocrisy. And so I'd ask you the question, are you taking advantage of the opportunities that we provide as a church for fellowship? To connect with other people who know grace and are seeking grace, connect with them around God's word to be receive the correction that fellow, only fellowship can give? Are you getting to know other believers who can strengthen you, who can speak into your lives? And are you vulnerable enough to receive, to listen, to let down your guards long enough that people can come in close and say the word that you need to hear? Steve Green, the singer-songwriter, once said, accountability to me is unnatural. My tendency is to only let you know enough about me to give you a good impression. And then he said, I'm a recovering hypocrite. And the fact is that Steve Green said what we all know to be true about ourselves, right? We, our natural tendency is to only let you know enough about ourselves that you'll develop a good impression, and not anymore. But that's how hypocrisy breeds. That's how Christians end up like Lucy and like that driver. It, it, we, we need to get closer to each other than that. So God's word guards us against hypocrisy. Fellowship will guard us against hypocrisy. But finally, courage guards us against hypocrisy. There will come times in your life and mine where we need to face our fears and resist the pressures. Courage will guard us against hypocrisy. Now, I mentioned that Peter was fortunate enough to have someone like Paul in his life. And I believe that uh, very likely Peter had a, a similar in influence in Paul's life. But notice how Peter got himself into the mess in the first place. Verse 12 describes Peter's life and ministry in Antioch. It says, Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So he was a Jew who had come to faith in Jesus as Messiah. But as a faithful Jew, he had grown up with certain dietary rules, certain restrictions on what you ate and what you didn't eat, who you ate with and who you didn't eat with. 
he came to faith in Christ and he knew that those, those, that Jesus had declared all foods clean. He knew that those dividing walls between Jew and Gentile had been taken down. He knew that there was now only one way to forgiveness and acceptance before God, to eternal life, and that one way was through repentance and faith in Jesus as Messiah. He knew those things. The trouble was that he got, he got an experienced fear of people. What would happen after, after, after a, a service? They would have a meal together. In, in, in the early church, it was called the agape meal. They would have a love, a love banquet. And the meal was intended, as all of the church would gather together, it was intended to express their unity, to express their fellowship. It gave them time to come together and to share their lives with one another. But after the certain men came, certain men from James arrived, at the end of verse 12, if you notice, it says, Peter, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, some of you are thinking, you know, on the face of it, that doesn't seem like a bad thing. Like this, the whole idea of a circumcision party, I don't know what that is, but it terrifies me. I don't know what kind of party that is, but uh, I don't want any, any part of it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't that kind of party, okay? It was just a group of people who believed that circumcision was necessary for, for salvation on top of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. They were, they were people who claimed to follow Christ, but who added a little something as a condition. They were the circumcision party. Peter didn't believe what they believed. He didn't believe that you had to be circumcised to be saved. But he feared offending them. He feared looking a little soft on the law. He feared looking kind of too liberal. He feared what they might say about him. He feared for his reputation. He wanted to be the strong leader. He was tough on sin. He, didn't want to, he wouldn't want to hold back anything. And so if there was a group saying, you've got to be circumcised as well, he, he, didn't want to, he didn't want to go against them. Fear will tempt us to live out other people's faith, faith not our own. Fear causes us to do things that we don't believe because we want people to accept us, want people to include us. Fear causes us to act in ways that we don't agree because we're afraid of what people will say. And it's that kind of fear that will breed hypocrisy every time. Before long, we find ourselves serving people and not serving God. Before long, very little of our behavior, even if it all looks like Christian behavior, very little of it is motivated by our faith and our love for God and our gratefulness for what Christ did in sacrificing himself for our sins. Before long, it doesn't come from that place. It all comes from obligation and fear and pressure and a desire to be accepted and included. And it'll destroy the heart of Christianity and the freedom of the gospel. That kind of fear-based hypocrisy isn't just a problem for the church. It exists in every religion, in every group, in every corner of the globe. We need courage to step away from the crowd. 
Usually when we talk about the courage to step away from the crowd, we're talking about like someone offers us drugs and we say no, or, or someone's kind of involved in something criminal and we're saying, no, I'm not having a part of that. I'm going to step away from the crowd. But you need courage to step away from the crowd even in church sometimes because there can be a legalistic pseudo-Christian peer pressure that people will exert and say, to be in our group, you need to do this. To, be, to receive our acceptance, you need to do this. Peter didn't show that courage. And verse 13 gives the result. Notice it says, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Because of fear, what was happening after church? Remember I told you about that great meal, expression of unity and love? You know what they did? They had two tables. They'll say, the Jews, the circumcised group, you can sit over here. And the Gentiles, you people who aren't circumcised, you, you can sit over in this corner here. If you would have asked Peter or Barnabas or any of the other Jewish Christians, do you believe that you have to be circumcised to be saved? They would have said no. They didn't believe what the circumcision party was was preaching. They didn't believe the message. They just feared offending them. And so they went along with something that they didn't believe. And hypocrisy ruled the church. Peter didn't have the courage to stand up to the pressure of the Judaizers, and so they treated the Gentiles like second-class Christians. And I wish that it had stopped in the first century. I wish that it was over and it was something that we could talk about in the past tense. But in every church, in every Christian's life, you will find yourself either tempted or confronted with this. And likely tempted and confronted at various points throughout your Christian life. We need courage to step away from the crowd. We also need courage to walk in step with God's truth. I love the way that Paul, that Paul singles out the problem in the church's hypocrisy. In verse 14, he doesn't argue that they've broken the rules. He doesn't say, you're not doing things the way that I like them to be done. I like a big table with everybody sitting together. Watch what he says. He says, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He said, at the heart of our, of our faith is a message of sacrificial love. At the heart of the gospel is a message of unconditional acceptance through faith in Jesus Christ. And when our behavior, what we're doing right now with this meal and how we're treating one another totally undermines that totally goes against what we say that we believe. What we say is at the center of who we are. It undermines undermines our faith, and so it needs to be confronted. It's hypocrisy. With the passing of Billy Graham last Wednesday, I was interested to read an account of a friend of his, an African-American man who saw him confront hypocrisy. He wrote about uh, a time in... 1953, when Billy Graham arrived in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he was there to to speak at an evangelistic crusade, a rally of thousands of people. And when he arrived, he saw a rope. In fact, lots of ropes 
and they had sections marked out, whites and blacks. Signs. Billy Graham that day had the courage to say, if I'm going to preach the message of the scriptures that there is salvation in one Savior through one way for all people, regardless of who they are and where they come from, then the ropes have to come down. The signs have to come down. There cannot, there cannot be a divided group and a unifying message. The ropes have to come down. Billy Graham faced the resignation of his head usher that day. He faced the loss of funding. He faced opposition from many people, many people very much like the circumcision party who wanted to treat one group different than another group, who wanted to lift up A-class Christians from B-class Christians and he said, that's not the gospel. They are not acting in step with the truth of the gospel and it has to be confronted. It's hypocrisy. It was at that same crusade that Martin Luther King was invited to pray and uh, I'll quote from a portion of his prayer. He said, in the midst of all of the high and noble aspects of justice, we have followed injustice. We stand amid the forces of truth and yet we deliberately lie. We stand amid the compelling urgency of the Lord of love as exemplified in the life of Jesus Christ, and yet we live our lives so often in the dungeon of hate. For all of these sins, O oh God, forgive. We don't have ropes here this morning because of men like Dr. Martin Luther King, like Billy Graham, and the Apostle Paul. The thing is, we can still put up ropes in our own hearts, right? We can still hold those same dividing lines. We can still have boxes and sections of how we relate to people, how we see people, and how we treat people. And even if the physical rope's not there, it's still in here. And it's hypocrisy. Only the gospel gives us the courage to admit, admit our true heart condition. Without the gospel, we just don't have the strength to face what's inside. Only the gospel over, offers the forgiveness that we need to deal with our past. And only the gospel gives us the grace of God that we need to change. Can't do it on your own. You don't tear down those ropes in your heart in man's strength. So let's guard our convictions in the word of God. Let's make time for the fellowship that can change us and protect us. And let's have the courage to confront the hypocrisy that will undermine our message. Let's look to God for his help. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would deliver us from hypocrisy. Deliver us from a life lived for other people's rules. Help us instead, Father, to live to honor you. Help us to live in obedience to your word. And Father, I pray that you'd guard our church from becoming a place that's ruled by pressure, and guilt, and control. May the love of Christ compel us to act. 
May the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross move us to love. May your Holy Spirit give us the power to walk in your ways. For we ask you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.